Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. A couple of months ago, I crossed the 100 episode threshold and I thought it would be a fun exercise to ask my fans, to ask people that like the show, to ask people that follow at ETS show on Twitter for some ideas for a guest. Who should I have on the show? Who who is someone that the audience wants to hear about and wants to hear a conversation with? It was not close. Arga Gonzalez, who is a surgeon at... Washington University at St. Louis was the leader by many lengths. It was not close at all. So she is here. This is going to be awesome. Um, I'm excited to find out why she has this fan base saying, please have her on Explore the Space. It's going to be fantastic to talk with her. Before we get to this conversation, just going to keep you waiting for like 90 more seconds. You can definitely find Explore the Space on our website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Please check it out there. The whole archive is there. There's just tons of extraordinary content there. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And Explore the Space is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. So you can download us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to download shows, we are there. Please leave a rating and a review and please subscribe. Whether it's Explore the Space or any other show, that is the best tool to help other people find content that's meaningful for you. The subscription, the rating, and the the review, that's the best way to do it. So if you have the opportunity, it would be appreciated by me and anyone else creating podcast content. So Argon Solace is here. Her CV is like volumes one, two, three, and four. It's unbelievably cool. I think I have a good sense of why she has so many fans on social media who wanted her to come on this show. I am so excited for this conversation. There are people who are movers and shakers in this work that we do. She is one of them. Argavon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation, Mark. I'm really excited. I think it's been a while that we've had this on the book, so I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Me as well. So... I put out this question on Twitter. I get a ton of pings back. Your name comes up over and over and over again. At the time, I don't think I was following you yet. So I followed you on social media and I did some research and I said, fantastic, let's make this happen. And you were very agreeable and here we are. But I want to ask you this question. Why do you think so many people reached out very quickly to say you're the person that they wanted to hear from? You know, I'm so um, honored and flattered that they did. I I don't really know, but one thing that um, people (laughs) comment on to me a lot is about how authentic they think that I am and how honest I am, which I just think is interesting because it's the only way I know to be. Um, But people seem to think that's, um, you know, a feat somehow. Um, So I just show up and be who I am. That's pretty much all I'm capable of doing. So let's talk about, though, honesty and authenticity. If that's the reason people are reaching out, do you think that there's a perception that perhaps in healthcare, in surgery, in leadership, in one of these many things that you do, that those are a novelty? Well, certainly, I think in a public way, yeah. I mean, we all know the narrative of success in healthcare is people who show up and do hard work and get rewarded and get promoted and ta-da, now they're department chair or division chair or chief or whatever. That's really the narrative that's out there. And um, there aren't many people who talk openly, outwardly about their struggles. Um, And one of the reasons I'm motivated to do that is because of all the people who are younger and who are coming up in the ranks, I just don't think it's fair to them to pretend like all it takes to be successful is to put your head down and do good work because there's a lot more to it than that. And there are a lot more downs than people want to acknowledge. Um, So in my mind, it's like the gift that I can give to other people to say, not everything is roses. And there are times when I feel down, there are times when things aren't really going my way. But I'm still here and I'm still making contributions, which I think are meaningful and important so that people realize when they're having a you know, rough time or things aren't going the way they expected, that that doesn't mean they can't still be successful. So that's kind of what I try to do. 
as you're saying that, I'm sort of thinking about this model of what we think is a success in the work that we do versus what's really important. And on paper, you have an MD, you have a PhD, you're an associate professor, you're going to be a full professor in about 45 minutes. You've, you're published, you speak, you do, you've checked all the boxes. And yet what I'm hearing from you is that there are still times where life is hard and being a physician is hard and being, be, being in this work is hard. That's the authenticity, what I'm hearing from you, that's the authenticity that people are really seeking and are learning from. I mean, I guess so. It does seem to be that's what people engage with the most. And I think that there is, you know, you have to have some degree of vulnerability to be able to say, these are things that did not work for me. Um, here are things I wanted to do that I wasn't able to do. Let's start it, with, let's start with platforms first. Let's start with how mm-hmm. we share that stuff. There's a lot of conversation right now on what is the best place or platform for us to be sharing information. Should we be using Twitter? Should we be blogging? Should we be doing podcasts? Should we be writing short or long form essays? What have you found to be the most powerful tools to share a message? You share your academic work, right? You're widely published. You also have the full panoply of resources available to you to share stories. And we, we've talked on this podcast you know, endlessly about the importance of the stories that we share and the vitality and the energy and the learning that comes from sharing those stories. Where do you first off like to share the things that you find are resonant with other people? I think that you've highlighted one of the keys, which is having diversity and how you put your messaging out there because there are different people who will go to different platforms. So the people who are going to read, say, an academic article that I write about gender bias are probably not the same people who are, well, not necessarily all the same people anyway, who are going to follow my thoughts on Twitter or who are going to read a blog post that I write for the Association of Women Surgeons or any of the other things that I put out in the world. You know, there are different readers for all those different venues. And so it's important to think about who you're trying to reach with each thing that you're putting out there and then figure out where those people are likely to be. So Um, you're intentional. What I'm hearing is you're very intentional about trying to decide, okay, this is what I'm putting out. This is the, this is the audience that I want it to reach. Therefore, as opposed to just kind of, I'll do this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we don't have control over everything, right? So you might have this perfect article that you write that you think will go great in JAMA, but you know, JAMA says, no, thank you. So we don't have control over everything, but I think it, it it is important to think about, you know, as a researcher, for me, when I'm thinking about problems I want to try to understand, there's a difference between designing a research study to understand that question and be able to write it up in a very academic way that goes into some journal, whatever journal it is, with restricted readership. That's a different approach than like what I did for that USA Today article about angry women. I didn't go and do a study in medicine about how people perceive women's anger. That study has been done many times in other fields, but I think we're all basically human. So what I did instead was to write about it in a more general way and talk about how how it affects women in medicine and our ability to get our work done. And that was a message I really wanted to be out there broadly. So I didn't ever write that up as a, say, a perspective piece for New England Journal or JAMA or Annals and Journal Medicine or whatever these other academic things are. I went straight to popular press because that's where I wanted that message to go. That article was one of the um, first so things it, of yours that I read, and I really liked it. I liked the perspective. I also liked that it was in USA Today. And one of the things that I find striking as I'm listening to you speak is you have entree into everything and not everyone does popular press you're published uh, everywhere you're you're you know podcasts <laughs> it's which is incredible it speaks to the work that you do but man that must feel uh, what is the right word to describe just sort of saying okay i want to write on x and i really have almost every button to push to decide where to put it that must be really invigorating i don't know what the right word would be 
Well, I think you are giving me way too much credit there. Um, I mean, as that's... anyone who does this type of writing knows, we don't, we, there's a lot we don't have control over, you know, um, and for all the things that you see that are out there, there are many, many things I'm working on that are on my laptop or on a Google doc or have been shared with a small community of people while I'm figuring out and trying to find the outlet for it. So I definitely don't want to give the impression that it's bam, I make a decision and then it's out in the world. No, it's, it's a lot more struggle than that. And again, I just want to be honest about that because I don't want to give the impression that I sit down and today writes some sort of piece and then I just send it to Time Magazine and it's published next week. That is definitely not how it goes for me. That's maybe, not how it goes, are- but, but you have been published in Time Magazine and that is exceptional. And that is something that we should say deserves to be recognized. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum either. So it's, I, I hear your side of it, but you have to understand from my perspective too. So we're probably going to end somewhere in the middle uh, <laughs> that, okay, fine. It doesn't just happen that you get published in Time Magazine, but you got published in Time Magazine. <laughs> oh, and I'm so, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Which, right. I mean, I will just tell you, even just last night, I was getting messages from a woman who had read the article that I wrote about egg freezing and um, really was spurred to go ahead with a cycle. And then she's keeping me updated on what's been happening with her. And I, um, I am grateful to be able to serve in that role for people really, truly for people to feel like there's someone they can reach out to because until for me, just as a, a woman, you know, surgeon, it wasn't until I started writing about that stuff, which I started writing about in the association for women surgeons blog that I realized how many people were affected by challenges related to fertility. Um, and then I was like, wow, there's a whole big chunk of women out there whose voice has not been heard, who are really struggling and struggling in silence and feeling isolated Um, And not to say that no one else has ever written on this topic. Obviously, people have. But this was my exposure to writing about it in in an open forum and seeing, wow, you know, people really were dying to have a conversation about this. So let's talk Um, a little bit about resonance then. Let's talk a little bit about things that you have contributed and continue to contribute that really have kind of gone off like a firework that maybe you expected or maybe you didn't expect. You mentioned the piece that you wrote around egg freezing. What are some of the other things that you've put out there that have, that have been really sticky that have had that same sort of impact where you're getting pings from people that you haven't met before who want to give their story or give feedback that have the stories that have had legs that have lasted a lot longer than you may have anticipated. What are some of the things that have really been resonant? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think not surprisingly, it's all pretty much always been the things that were in big press. So back in 2015, I was in an article in time. I didn't write the article, but I was, um, had a whole photo spread that I was featured in about physician well-being. So that was one where people were writing me letters and, um, sending emails and one person even sent me a book, you know, so that was something that really um, resonated for people because we were acknowledging, um, and that piece was written by Mandy Oaklander, but acknowledging the challenges for physicians to keep ourselves healthy. And that was, you know, although that conversation is definitely ongoing now, that was even four years ago, something that she cared to write about and I think was helpful um, for the physician community. And then really, you know, it's, it's somewhat perverse because I'll spend a year, two years, three years, five years on an academic paper, you know, that gets published and I will have put my heart and soul into it and really believe in it and, and believe that it's high quality work. And then, you know, I'll tweet it out and some people will engage with it for a day or two and um, that's great. And then it fades away. But these other pieces where, you know, I just kind of show up and had a photographer follow me around for a couple days and then it makes this big splash in time and then people want to talk about that for a long time I mean even just sometime within the last I don't know six to eight months somebody recirculated that article um on Twitter because it was still meaningful to people Um, I think that what you're describing is in is an interesting and a really elegant way to put into specific relief the struggle that we have in medicine of really getting our best stuff and our best people forward 
And I talked about this mm-hmm. with Brian Vardabedian recently on the podcast as well. And I talk about this on Twitter a lot. The, the way that academic journals are set up right now, they are doomed to fail because if they can't get you in a forward facing fashion quickly, when you send them something and get it where it resonates and get it where it's loud and get it where it can be recirculated, they're done. And, and I'm, I, I, I don't, none of us have enough time. There's so much good content out there and we're all busy. Mm-hmm. If it's not readily available and if it's not where we want it, when we want it, we ain't going to look. And, you know, unless it's, yeah. unless it's specific science related to something else that is related to specific science, but your stuff, that's, that is, that's aspirational stuff. That's stuff that we just need to be able to see when we need it. And that that's a real tension. Right. And I think part of the challenge and the reason that we find ourselves in this place is that everyone in an academic center is judged on productivity and, yeah. and not just obviously patient care productivity, but academic productivity. Right, and so there's right. this immense pressure to write and publish. And what happens is we're, we're taking all these people, many of whom are strong clinicians and their passion is to care for patients. And we're telling them you have to also do this other activity that you may or may not care about and may or may not have the appropriate skills for, but you have to do it. And so people do, and they just do the best that they can with whatever data is sitting around, or can they survey their residents on something and write something up, not necessarily because they're passionate about it or because they care about it, but because they feel they have to do it. And then these journals exist to be the place where those things go, right? Not all of them, obviously, but that's part of why there are so many journals. And then you end up with this situation like you described where there's just so many articles and and it's very hard to weed through and figure out what's high quality and what's not as high quality what's relevant to me what is going to help me in my either way that i interact with residents or the way that i care for patients um it's just very challenging like you say to sift through all of that if we had a different system let's say where the only people who really needed to publish were the people who were passionate about research and were trained in how to do research, then I think we'd have a different type of output that might get read more. I think that there's real value and truth in what you're saying. And there's a word that you just used that I want to pick up on as well, because I think it segues us nicely into something else that I feel like you do is very meaningful. And I would say others would, would agree. And that's different. And I think that looking for that different approach, that different way of doing things you write very meaningfully and thoughtfully around what needs to be different in the work that we do and different in the work environments in which we function men and women, but focusing on the experience of women in healthcare and you write very vividly and clearly about that. How has it been for you kind of operating in that space? Well, you know, that's a passion that has burned for me for a long time. Um, I was an engineer as an undergraduate um, and never really had any awareness of particular struggles for women. I'll be honest with you. I, at that time, would just show up to class and do all the tests, and I did very well, and I, I was kind of blissfully unaware of any issues. And it wasn't until even through medical school I didn't really have any challenges like that. It wasn't until I was a resident that I started to feel like, maybe men and women weren't getting treated the same way. This is in a general surgery residency. Correct. General surgery residency. And I had some experiences that are very similar to what I hear other women in other specialties talking about, um, in particular with how they related to, um, or the challenges they had in communicating patient care orders to nurses in a way that would be received well in order to facilitate ultimately the care of the patient among other things, but, you know, I started to look around and go, wow, this isn't really what I thought this was going to be like, Um, because I have a lot of flaws, Mark, like everybody does, but one thing that I know about myself, or some of the things I know about myself are that I, I show up, I work really hard, I learn fast, and I have a great capacity for retaining information. So, I know when I'm struggling that it's not those things. It's something else. And that was the first time in my life where all of those other things 
didn't get me to success. And then I started looking around and trying to figure out what was going on. What was it about me? What was it about the environment? What was it about the work? And then when I started my PhD, I came across this article about stereotype threat, which briefly, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but briefly it's the idea that if there's a um, negative stereotype about an aspect of your identity, whether that be your gender, your age, or your race, and you're in an environment where that um, identity is relevant and related to performance, and your performance will go down. So an easy example is um, Asian women taking a math test. If they are randomized to half of them being asked their gender before the math test and half of them being asked their race before the math test, those who are asked their gender perform significantly worse than those who are asked their race. So that's controlling even for previous math achievement. So I came across this idea for this theory, and I just became fascinated by it. I'd never heard of it before, even though it was defined back in the 1980s. And I started reading more and more, and then ultimately ended up doing my dissertation on that topic, looking specifically at how the stereotype that men are better surgeons than women impacts women training to become surgeons. And then I just kept kind of on that same line in different ways, you know, moving a little bit away from that particular theory into more general, uh, trying to understand how bias affects women in the workplace. And I will tell you that multiple people have told me not to do that. I can um, imagine. And those are people, uh-huh, people senior to me have said, you know, I, I would really recommend that not be your academic focus. Hmm. Out of concern for me, right? And how that's going to be perceived by what is a, a field that's mostly made of men. That must be a very interesting place to be when you know you want to do the right work. <sighs> And you know it's important and you know it's got meaning and value and people who should know better are telling you to stop. Well, it's, it's precisely because they know better, I think. You know, they are just, <laughs> yeah. honestly, they're yeah. worried about um, my ability to get promoted, to be successful in a workplace. And and I think that they're right, to tell you the truth. But by the time I started hearing these messages, that was a good eight or nine years into this research agenda. <laughs> so, so you, I was like, um, <laughs> you've been doing this for a while. And I, I, I hear that you've been yeah. doing this work for a while, right? It's, it's a, it's a decade plus now. That's a lot of heavy water to carry. Do you feel like now there are more and more people that are coming to your side and that are joining people whose side you joined to carry a lot of this weight? Are the numbers of people who are taking an interest and paying attention and engaging to try to make this, again, getting back to that word different, to make it different, to make it better, are those numbers and ranks increasing? I think so, absolutely. Um, Although I will say that I think they're almost all women who are are joining that Mm -hmm. um, effort, which is great, uh, but no change can be made really by one group of people, I think, last change. Um, I think we're going to need to continue to build alliances, which we're trying to do, and to identify people, you know, mostly men, um, who also believe in justice and equity. And I think that's one of the, I mean, for better or worse, one of the things that is like a guiding value in my life is a desire for fairness and justice. And that I say that it could be for worse, I say that because we all know the world that we live in is not just. And so I find myself very frustrated. Yeah. That can be a major challenge. And these are, right. And these are the challenges that people don't talk about, right? People say things, you know, like, oh, great job on this or great job on it. Great. But what about the toll, too, that we yeah. take on by doing this type of work? Um, but you speak to the a, toll. That's the work that you're doing. You're good at that. But I can imagine, you speak to that toll. I can imagine that being the person who speaks to the toll that it takes, in and of itself, takes a toll on you. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And the other thing that I really struggle with, which is, you're going to think it's a little a field of what we're talking about, but I think my other major struggle is this tendency toward perfectionism. Oh. Which can, were can we can we like can them. we can we walk shoulder to shoulder on that one, please? My <laughs> yeah. goodness. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where, like, in college, in medical school, even I will say in residency, that was encouraged. Right? Everybody <laughs> loved that I would never 
miss a lab value oh. or miss an abnormal vital sign or, you know, they would miss a diagnosis. Um, and that was only really possible for me because I was so almost obsessive about all these things. But you said something um, that's really important. You said don't miss. And you're right. That's what it was. Don't miss this. Don't miss that. Don't yeah. miss. Don't miss. That's the yes. wrong-headed approach. I had an mm-hmm. attending when I was the resident in the ICU and he wraps up, we wrap up rounds, a prominent attending, don't need to say his name. And he says, all right, who's on call tonight? And I said, it's me, sir. And he points at me and he says, don't screw up. And he leaves the unit. Mm-hmm. There are much better ways to encourage excellence, to allow people to improve, to allow for accountability, to allow for professional growth than this idea of don't miss, don't miss be afraid of failure. Failure means, you know, off a cliff. It's all over for you because you're miserable and you're nothing as opposed to the growth mindset. And I learned this really from David Burke when I read his article on redefining perfection and then having him on the podcast a few times, the way they do it in, in at Top Gun and the way they debrief around fighter pilot exercises, it's a hundred percent accountability. These are the things that mm-hmm. I didn't do right. I want to share them with you guys so you can you can get better. I'll get better too. Let's have some shared decision making. Let's have some feeling of togetherness and teamwork around it. We don't do that very well in medicine. Not at all. And you can do like any intern or second year resident will tell you they can do any hundreds of things right. Yep. And the second that there's something they missed. Yeah. Either they didn't put something in the discharge summary or they didn't catch that this lab value was a little right. bit off or right. whatever. It must be um, an interesting exercise for you as an attending, though, because you're obviously a great teacher. You're you're an excellent surgeon. Your residents and students must just love to get to work with you. But do you ever catch yourself getting back into that place? I mean, it must. It's it's unfortunately it's a pretty hardwired circuit for a lot of us. Do you ever have to catch yourself? Oh, absolutely. And I would just correct you and say that I am a, a really, really good teacher in a classroom. I am a. Um, and this is just the truth that I believe. I am really great at mentoring students on research projects. I am not great at teaching in the operating room. In fact, I would say I'm awful at it. I don't enjoy it. I don't, it's not my thing. So part of that is, and I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about that and why it is. But part of that for me is that when I'm in the operating room, my number one, two, three focus is on taking care of the patient. Yeah. Yeah. And my desire for my unrealistic and unmeetable desire for perfection gets in the way of my being able to teach. Interesting. So that tension comes up in the OR and yet it's hard to argue against your approach because your approach is a patient centered one. And that's, that's tough. That's a tough road to navigate. Right. But there are people who do it and people who do it very, very well. And I think it has to do with backing off of that perfectionism a little bit yeah, because yeah. good enough will be good enough. That's right. But I just have this, you know, while I, I'm very secure in myself in other realms, starting out, you know, early on in my career as a surgeon, that's the part where I just want to make sure that everything is perfect. And I know that somewhat less than perfect will probably be okay, but I don't know how much less than perfect. So one of the fun things about this show is a large number, if not the majority of the listeners to explore the space are not physicians. I would argue that anyone who's hearing this, who is going to need to have some sort of surgery is going to want their surgeon to espouse exactly what you just said. Probably so. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would want if I were a patient, but Mark, the reality is that we don't work alone. That's right. right. That's right. a scrub tech, we've got a circulator and we've got some kind of assistant in an academic center. That assistant happens to often be a resident, but yep. even if you're not in an academic center, you're going to have an assistant, which if you're lucky could be one of your partners, but if not, could be a, an RN or an NP or somebody like that. Who's, who's a surgical assist. And one of the things that I'm really trying to learn and, and, and help myself to manage is that not everyone comes with the same level of expectations for what they're able to do. Yeah. Not everyone has the same set of skills. And, and, and the key to taking care of that patient is figuring out how to, like you were saying earlier, motivate everyone in the room to do the best they possibly can and recognize that that best is not going to be perfect. Here's the way we're going to reconcile this so we can both feel good about moving on because a lot of us walk the same road. 
what you're doing, right? You could easily stop. You could sit back and you could have a great career starting now and not, not tinker, not do anything differently. And you would have an extraordinary career. You're, you're probably entering your prime if you're not already in your prime and you're still trying to get better. You're still identifying things that you perceive could be improved. You're seeking out advice. You're looking for mentorship and coaching and you're still, you're still trying to get better. I would suggest that on balance of the things we would want in our physician, in our teammate, whatever we do, that trumps everything. You're still trying to get better. And I think that that is what, when we think about things we want to do differently, we want people to always be striving to get better. I think that's true. And, and I would agree with you. I really am trying, but I, I just also want to acknowledge that I'm not always succeeding. And that's part of the journey though, right? And I think that that's part of why I might suggest people want to hear from you. And they say, Mark, you need to interview Arga Vansalas because you express a level of accountability and a level of forthrightness that is rare, especially in medicine, where we're not very good at that, where we don't like to admit where we're weak. We like to flex where we're strong. And I might suggest that if we circle back to where we started, why is it? It's not the organizations that you're a part of. It's not your turn of phrase necessarily. It's that you embrace the vulnerabilities. You are able to articulate your own journey with them so that people can feel like they're not alone and then try to get better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. The key is always trying to get better and do better and be better and figure out how to do that and how to bring people along on the journey. I think that's the real challenge. And then also I just want to acknowledge we have to find joy Yes. in what we do. That's like right. I don't watch Marie Kondo. I haven't read the book, but, but I do think that it's important to have some joy because we can't really help people, whether it's residents or students or patients, if we don't have joy in ourselves. So that's an important question as you're doing this work and the, the things that you write about, they're sensitive, they're hard, they're emotional, they're very personal you are part of some really, really powerful organizations, 500 women in medicine being a great one that are tackling really tough things. Does it ever feel like too much? Or do you ever feel like pushing against a lot of, you know, heavy weight takes the joy away or does it add to it? No, of course there are times when it feels like it's too much. Yeah, absolutely. There are times when I say, you know, this work, and I've had this conversation with my students also, this work is so important. I really believe that it is. But does it have to be me? Right. <laughs> can, it, can it be someone else? <laughs> because right. the toll sometimes is just too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, the other thing I will say is that I, for better or worse, have never been a person who felt like everyone must like me. I've never desired that. Um, I'm sure it would be nice, but I have opinions And I'm pretty, like you say, forthright. So that rubs people the wrong way. And that's okay. That's okay. But yeah, totally. Um, I mean, for me, you know, Mm -hmm. it's fine. But at some point, or at various points, perhaps, it's too much. Right? If you're, whatever your struggle is, whatever it is that you're fighting for, if you're meeting too many closed doors and too much vitriol, then there really is a personal toll and you have to say, okay, I need to take some time yeah, to rebuild myself. You are right in the middle of that tension because, you know, I think people, again, circling back to this idea of why is it you that people want to hear from? Well, you're, you are the one doing this work and you know, the spotlight can be really hot and really bright and that can be very tiresome. How do you care for yourself? How do you make sure that while you're, you know, just entering or you're in your professional prime, that it's not going to be foreshortened and it's going to last a nice long time and, and feel good and productive and, and, and worth it. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Honestly, it's really hard. There's certainly some things like we, we've talked on, on Twitter about, you know, saying no, knowing when to say no. Obviously there are many other people, like you mentioned rightly, who are also in the struggle. Right. Um, so I, I in no way want to say that I'm the foremost person or the only person or anything like that, but 
it is something that's central to me in my life is to try to fight for equity. And so there are times when there are really great projects that come along or great opportunities that come along. And I have to learn and get better at saying no. I say no sometimes. I do, but I probably don't say it enough. And then I end up in a place where I've got too many people who I've committed to, who I really, and and this is the other thing with that perfectionism is I can't bring anything less than all of me. I'm not able to do it. If I could, I could probably get by, but I just can't. And so I, I feel that I have to give, if someone like this happens to me all the time, people send me surveys that they want to do. And they ask for my feedback because I've done a lot of survey research. And then I will spend an inordinate amount of time reading those survey questions and giving them very detailed feedback. Yeah. I don't have to do that, but I'm just not capable of doing less than that. And that's my own issue. So I have to learn how to say no to more things so that, I have enough in my own well, because you're asking about how do I maintain my wellness. The other thing I will say is that I have some really incredible people I'm gifted to have as friends and support. Um, I don't know if you saw, I just posted this maybe yesterday that I had gotten this card um, from my friend. I'm just going to pick it up because I forget what she said. Oh, I saw it, but read it. Yeah. Uh, No, no, no. no. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but read it. Yeah. So this is from a really close friend of mine, actually med school um, classmate. She says, you inspire me each and every day in your commitment to fight for justice and to make the world a better place in ways large and small. And then she said, and there's more, but she said cookies and everything. And I didn't, you know, there's no birthday, there's no occasion for her to have done this, but she just did it. And that replenishes my soul. Um, and I know actually I sent you, I forgot, I sent you an email that I had gotten from a patient you did. who was, it was just the nicest email that I've really probably ever gotten. Um, and that was really something that gave me joy because I had been taking care of that, that woman for several years. And, you know, I don't know that I've solved all her problems, I'll be yeah. honest with you, yeah. but she's still so grateful that I answer her emails, answer her phone calls, and I do the best that I can. And so those moments, stringing together those moments is what helps me get through what I think is otherwise sometimes a struggle and sometimes a joy. I like hearing you say that because I'll share with you that when I get cards and letters like that, my first instinct is that I don't believe them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where, you know, we, we talk on, I think you and I have been part of some pretty detailed conversations on social media about imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the places where I have it, where I'm like, nah, they're, they're, do, they're just doing it because they feel like they should. Um, and then right. I'm like, this is ridiculous, Mark. This is a wonderful letter. Keep it, read it, you know, share it with the family. And then I, and I do, and I internalize it and I feel really good about the words that are, that are written down and the fact that they took the time to do it. But yeah, that first reflex is, nah, that is, this isn't real. Right, right. And I think we have to try to have a balanced view of ourselves, which right. is really hard because yeah, anything yeah. negative about ourselves is a threat to our own identity. Yeah. Um, going back to my psychology training, like we <laughs> are designed to protect ourselves from any of those threats to who we think we are. Right. And that's why when I, when I tweeted that, that note, I said, this is, this is someone who sees me as the person I want to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. sure that I am that person yet, but she sees who I want to be. And that means so much to me that she sees that I'm trying. No, it's, you know? it, it's, it's, it's huge work. And all of us are doing the same work in parallel. I think that that's why you resonate. And I think that that's why your stuff that gets into the mainstream keeps circling back because those same messages they hit, I mean, that's, it's important stuff. And I hopefully have a long career ahead still too, but there are certain things that, I have to learn as well, learning how to say no, being a very, very big one and a very, very important one. We, we walk these exciting roads and opportunities continue to pop up. You cannot do all of them. And as much as we That's right. fantasize that we can, we just cannot. So That's right. There's only so many hours in a day, no matter right. how much we wish the day could be longer. That's right. That's right. So speaking of things that I did not do, because we're, we're coming up on the end of this conversation, though I suspect we're going to need to have more. So when I was a medical student, I was, I had so much fun on my surgical rotations. I loved them. And as they wrapped up, I had an oral exam and it was actually yeah. really fun. Um, the, the surgeon that, that gave me my exam, I was in the room with him for, I want to say, I don't know, maybe 60 or 90 minutes. And we walked through like four or five cases and he would get kind of annoyed with me. And then he'd back off when he realized I was doing a good job. 
that experience for me was a, an interesting and a very compelling one. And I haven't had one since. And as I was looking <laughs> through your, you know, getting to know your work, I found your episode of Behind the Knife, which is a really cool surgical podcast where you stepped the hosts of Behind the Knife through a couple of oral exam questions. And as I was listening to it, I was absolutely wrapped. And the biggest reason was, is I was tracking your tone and I was tracking how their whole affect changed. They're the host. You're the guest. It's fun. It's good. It's back and forth. Now you're the examiner. They're the examinee. And it was like a light switch had been flipped. It was unreal. And then I could tell when you were not happy. I could tell when you gave an answer that did not satisfy the examiner. And I was like, this is so, and they could tell too. And you could tell they were just melting into their seat. So we have a couple minutes left and I pinged you a couple days ago. Can we do an oral yeah. exam surgical question? Sure. All right. Sure. I'm ready. <laughs> this is going to be a mess. Let's go. Right. I'm ready. Okay. I, I, I apologize if this doesn't go well. But, it's going to go um, the way it needs to go. This I, is going to be fantastic. All right. Awesome. So we got to get our game faces on. Okay. We're in the office. We're locked in. I'm being examined. There's a lot at stake. You have to be the unflappable attending. So, all right, I'm ready. Okay. You have in front of you a 45 year old woman who um, has been sent to see you because of symptoms related to nausea and vomiting. Am I seeing her in the office or am I seeing her in the emergency department or am I, is she already admitted? In the office. In the office. Okay. So, you know, the undifferentiated nausea, vomiting in a 45-year-old female, obviously, I, I need to, to, to get more information. What, what precipitates it? What relieves it? How long has it been going on? And certainly in a 45-year-old looking for symptoms of, you know, the alarming B symptoms, un, you know, unanticipated weight loss, fevers, uh, previous surgeries. There's a long list of things that I would go through. Those would be the ones that I want to know first, looking for the emergencies uh, that would precipitate me saying we need to get you to the emergency department so we can continue our examination there, or are you stay are you stable? Are you medically well enough where we can continue the examination in the office? Right. So she says that she has noticed this going on for several months now. She's not really sure how long. Maybe three months. Maybe six months. Not totally clear. The symptoms are basically right after she eats that the food comes back up, and it happens a lot of times. Not every time. She's not had any um, weight loss, although she has adjusted her diet to be more um, liquid-based rather than eating a lot of solid food at this point. And it, over the course of this, what's sounding more like a subacute to chronic presentation is she's, I would imagine she's starting to lose weight. No, actually, she's not losing weight. She's not losing weight. Okay. So she supplemented her calories by changing her diet, but she's maintaining her overall kind of caloric intake. Correct. Okay. So yeah, milkshakes and that are magical for that. I'm, I'm always curious in situations like this, is there something that's changed that precipitated her coming to my office or is it just, she had an appointment with me on the books for three months. Um, or again, is there something that's new that's different where she called in to say, I right. need to get seen right away. So she, at first when this started happening, you know, she was thinking it was going to be something that passed, but then when it persisted, um, you know, she's very busy with working multiple jobs and mm -hmm. had a hard time getting a day off to see a doctor, but she eventually did see a primary care doctor because you're a surgeon. So she saw a primary care doctor <laughs> right? and then the um, primary care doctor ordered some tests um, and she ultimately saw a gastroenterologist as well before being sent to see you. One thing that I think it's important for us to be very respectful of is this woman's journey to date. She's already seen a bunch of doctors. She's already probably missed some days of work. This has already been extraordinarily stressful for her, setting aside the fact that she can't swallow properly. So for mm -hmm. me, there I have a sense of urgency of we need to get we just need to get the show on the road. And so um, I'm not comfortable saying that we can do things where they're going to stretch out over another month. That's not fair to her, and we need to just make sure that we're not missing something. I would be tempted to say she should not knowing the resources available and the fact that I, my practice is primarily hospital based though. I'm in the office today. I'd like to have her come down to radiology today and get, and get at least an upper GI done uh, as well as the CT of her chest and her abdomen and pelvis. And then, you know, the standard laboratory data that we would like to seek out in, in a patient presenting like this, but I'm not comfortable saying this can, you know, let's get your imaging and see you back in another week. That just doesn't feel right to me. 
Got it. So you're so you're saying you would want um, your first thing maybe would be a bearing swallow. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, call down to radiology and say, look, this is where we are. We're in the office. Can can I can she come down? You know, in the next hour or two to get a, to get an upper GI or bearing swallow. Sure. And if they said okay, so no, that. that would be fine. And then I would do something else because I'm not comfortable saying, let's just get you scheduled for later this week. Yeah, no, I think that's fine. So she goes down to radiology. <laughs> <Good>. um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she goes down to radiology yeah. and actually they say, wait, you were just here last week with that test that your other doctor ordered. Do you want to just look at that test? Oh, and it turns out she already had a bearing swallow. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, and so you go, Oh, great. Uh, sorry, I missed that. Let me look at it now. Indeed. And you look at it and what you see is that she's got a, a very dilated esophagus, um, that terminates in kind of a sharp angle, um, or a sharp narrowing right at the level of the GE junction. So you mentioned that she's already seen a gastroenterologist. Have they done an have they done an EGD on her yet, or do they have one scheduled already? No, that's right. So they also did an endoscopy and um, basically found the same thing, which was that she had this um, narrowing. You know where her um, lower esophageal sphincter was it was very, very tight. And then um, studies and like manometry and pH testing. Have they done those yet? Perfect. So they did a manometry which showed that she had basically no motility in her esophagus. Okay. And the lower esophageal sphincter tone was mildly elevated um, and did not relax. So being a really well-trained general surgeon, I am going to use my phone a friend card and I'm going to call Dr. Solace in the office next to mine and say, (laughs) you are a specialist in this type of medicine. And so I'm going to call you, I'm calling you in because you're going to step me through the next things to do. Cause we need to counsel this patient correctly. That's, that's hard. Yes. That's really well, hard to do. That's stressful. That's really difficult. I hadn't done that for a while. It's yeah. not easy. <laughs> so you're going to call it there. Cause I, what I was going to say to you is Dr. Solis is out of town. Oh, all right. Let's <laughs> press on. She's out of town. All right. She's, she's on, she's, she's in Antarctica. I don't have cell reception. Correct. We are, I will admit to the patient that we are getting to the limits of my expertise. I think that it's important that they know that so that we can have informed and good shared decision-making. This is something, if the GI doctor did not feel comfortable proceeding with, like, if there was nothing there for them to dilate, yeah. I think that we need to start looking at surgical solutions. And I will express to you as my examiner, I probably need to go back and get some remediation because I do not know the next steps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's fair. And probably in that circumstance, they did dilate, but they probably didn't dilate enough. Didn't dilate enough. Didn't okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. That is um, really, really difficult. I would much prefer to be the hospitalist who's going to be co-managing when this patient comes in for surgery. What? So what would be the next yeah. step? What happens? Yeah. So that patient sounds like she's got achalasia. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And um, that is defined by, you know, the, the LES tone being mildly elevated or somewhat, sometimes more than that, but yes. that just relax. So I know um, that she had achalasia. Did I get dinged for not saying achalasia out loud? Yeah, I probably would have been Ugh. good to say. All right. Probably just got to call it out. All right. You know, so at this point, I think that the patient has achalasia <laughs> and, you know, the options for care might include yeah. dilation. Yeah. Botox injection and a myotomy. And then the question is, do you do that? Yeah. The myotomy is the um, pairing of the muscle essentially so that we open up the sphincter and that can be done either endoscopically in what's called per oral endoscopic myotomy or poem, or it can be done laparoscopically in a procedure called a Heller myotomy. And then, and then the person would ask you, well, what, what, what would you do? You know, and then you would, pick one of those things and they would say, well, how, how do you do that? And, and that, that's how so it then you have to start walking through the actual technique of the surgery. Step one is this step two is this step three is this. That's right. Wow. That's right. That's a tough examination. Is it hard to administer that exam or cause you have to stay, you know, you can't roll your eyes. You can't, or maybe you can. Oh yeah. Yeah. They are, um, the people who do the board exams are, are, are you know, people who've already gone through it for one thing. Yeah. And, uh, have administered these at least in a mock session before they've come to do it there on because most of them have been involved to some degree in their residency. Um, and so, yeah, they are, they try very hard to keep a flat expression on their faces. I will say one of my examiners, when I did this was kindly smiling at me throughout. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I had the one exam I had the attending 
kind of slowly escalated. The first two questions I knew I had done very well. The third question was a trauma recess and I felt very comfortable with the steps and, you know, the hospital I'd been at, I'd participated in a bunch and I'd studied it because I really liked it. And moving through, we got to some transition point and I literally hesitated for a heartbeat. He literally put his hands on his desk, pushed himself up and leaned forward and said, Mark, MD stands for make decisions. What are you going to do? (laughs) That was so great. I, I think he was doing it because oh, like I, I want him to get out with a story. Like Mark's doing fine. He's you know he's going to pass the exam. Let's give him a fun story to tell twenty five years later on a podcast. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that was the motivation. Yeah, exactly. That that is that is difficult work. I will I will gladly co manage surgical patients with you anytime. I will leave the decision making of poem versus Heller myotomy to you. Uh, but if you, <laughs> if you need co-management, I am right there. I'd be glad to see the patient alongside you. That'll be fun. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. This was wonderful. Uh, your honesty and candor and forthrightness that I think is what is drawing so many people to you on social media and in mainstream media and in academic work as well. It, it's clear why this resonates. It, it's it's a real pleasure to to speak with you, and it's gratifying to know that there's people in their prime who are fully invested, who are doing this work, like you, to to really help move the needle, to continue, keep making this work doable, wonderful, joyful, as you said. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, and to everyone out there, I just hope everybody realizes that we all struggle, every single one of us, even Barack Obama. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No way. No even way. Michelle. Even Michelle. If 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 you've got a cha- if you've got an in to get them on the podcast, I will I will gladly take it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> next, next time I'm on the phone with them, I'll mention. That's you. right. That's right. I don't fanboy out much, but I would fanboy out if they came on the show. That's for sure. Argavon, thank you so yeah. much for coming on. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.